Thank you. I want to welcome you here to the Wilson Library this evening for what is actually the third lecture in a series that uh, started in the fall. We had two lectures already. This is our third ser in, in a series that uh, is co-sponsored by the North Carolina Studies Center and InterVarsity Christian Fellowships graduate and faculty ministries here at UNC. And I know a lot of you know about the Study Center and perhaps also about InterVarsity. Anyway, I'm on staff with InterVarsity here at UNC. Um, my name is Hank Tarleton, and I uh, wanted to go ahead and get started here. I'm gonna do a few introductions and then a prayer, and then we'll have all of you sit up there and we'll, we'll begin. Anyway, our topic tonight, why are Americans so afraid of death? Our, our presenters this evening, Dr. Stanley Howard-Watts, Gilbert T. Rowe, Professor Emeritus of Divinity and Law at Duke University, where for many years he taught theological ethics. He was recognized by Time Magazine as America's best theologian, and in 2001 presented the prestigious Gifford Lectures. Our other presenter is Dr. Farah Kerwin, the Josiah C. Trent Professor of Medical Humanities, and he holds joint appointments at Duke in the medical and divinity schools. Dr. Curlin is palliative care physician. He teaches courses as part of the divinity school's initiative on theology, medicine, and culture. And just so you know, he is also a Tar Heel, having completed his bachelor's and medical degrees here. Before we begin, I'm going to pray, and then Delaney, I'm going to turn it over to you. Collect from the Book of Common Prayer. O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins, banish our fears, make us bold to praise you and to do your will and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may. Thank you all for coming tonight, especially on a rainy one. I've been looking forward to this conversation um, in large part because I feel like on university campuses, everyone is young and beautiful like yourselves, and <laughs> death seems very far away. So I'm really glad for the opportunity to speak with two experts um, at the grad students room. So thanks to the study center. I wanted to begin by thinking through the cultural assumptions that we have when it comes to death and dying. Um, so the title of our discussion tonight was Why Americans Are So Afraid of Death. And people might object to this, maybe you might object to this and say, fear of death isn't a uniquely American thing. This is something that all humans have been concerned about across all of time. Um, and yet there does seem to be something specific about our cultural moment. So, 
I want to know what you think about the American perspective on death, sort of as we're experiencing it today. Maybe if you want to begin, we'll let Dr. Howells keep reading. There's a wonderful prayer. Oh, there's there's a wonderful prayer in the book Coming Prayer. This is Ochner's uh, new book, uh, so I can't find it. <laughs> but um, it's the prayer of a sick person that says, if I'm to do nothing, may I do it gallantly, which I think is a wonderful prayer to indicate that illness and death doesn't stop us from praying and being gallant in our prayers. That's what I was looking for. That's beautiful and worth it. Thank you. And if you want to read more of his reflections on that, there's an essay in the journal Christian Bioethics uh, in which he unpacks that further with with Kali. So, um, why stand here? Are they are Americans part of them? Why don't you get the first word on that? Well, um, as sin came into the world through one man and death came. As sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin. When have you heard a sermon in church that death came through sin? Um, I think on the whole, uh, Christians have been very good at avoiding the fact that sin alienates us from God. And if you are alienated from God, death is one of the modes of that alienation. So how you talk about death um, is generally not in play given the grammar. Uh, I mean, let me do this. How many of you have heard a, have heard a sermon on death in your church? Well, that's not too bad, about maybe a fourth. But on the whole, you never hear a sermon on death, except maybe at a funeral where it might be mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of hard to avoid at that point. The um, um, uh, the um, I mean, Americans think if they just get good enough at medicine, they can get out of life alive. Um, Funerals are the alternative to that, where you are um, made up as a dead person so well, you look better than you look. <laughs> so funerals are meant to say, they're not really dead. Uh, when, when I was a kid growing up, I remember that my first confrontation with death, we were Texans in a little small white frame church. Um, and um, we were, t there was an elderly man in his 80s who held his um, hearing aid up to hear the preacher. And we were told that Dad Haggard, we were to love Dad Haggard because Dad Haggard loved us, little kids. I never saw any evidence that Dad Haggard loved little kids, but we were told to love him. And sure enough, he died. And um, it was a hot Saturday, and we were in the um, church, and I was there with my parents. I must have been five, something like that. 
and we started going. I, um, suddenly, I realized everyone was standing up and they were in a line to go buy the open casket. And my, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to see a dead person. And uh, we got there, and my father picked me up to look in to the casket. I, I was just scared. And uh, they had, we, we weren't people that had a lot of money. And they had put a red sash across his chest with Elmer's glue and, and uh, sprinkles of kind. And it said, Eternities Now. <laughs> <laughs> and he had never looked better. <laughs> I think people would like to think eternity is now um, in a way that secures um, a sense of the eternality of, of something called the soul that on the whole leaves God out of the picture. I mean, the, what happened and what happens in sin is our alienation from God, which is death. And we simply don't know how to say that to one another. I, um, one of the reasons Americans are afraid of death, and here Americans are like probably everyone in the North Atlantic industrialized countries, um, is that we, um, unlike any period in history, we are shielded away from the sight of death and the actual experience of seeing people die. Uh, most of us, um, we don't. Just a century and a half ago, a third or a half of the kids were dying before their childhood. So everybody saw a child die. Um, people, there were no hospitals in the nineteenth century, so uh, nothing like we have currently. So when people die, they die in the home. Um, so people don't see death very much. That's part of it. And yet, I have seen hundreds of people die in my work, and I'm an American, and I'm terrified. Of and um, this has been brought up close to me in the last uh, week when the younger brother of a good friend uh, dropped dead um, in his early 40s, a father of four young children, um, of probably a heart attack. And the mother of one of my, of a classmate of one of my kids um, died after a, a long illness with cancer uh, in early 40s. And, and I found myself feeling my mortality and not feeling sanguine about it, you know? Um, <clears throat> so it's been, I suspect that what's happened in our culture is that we have, uh, we know that death is gonna separate us from everything we love, and we have come to love deeply things which we will definitely be separated from. Um, and, uh, it's terrifying for us. It's in my observe for most people who are dying. It's pretty terrifying. I was um, visiting with Tommy Langford, which some of you may may have known, who had been provost at uh, Duke and dean of the Divinity School. And it was the day before he died. But of course, we didn't know it was the day before he died when I was visiting him. And I asked him. I said, Tommy, uh, are you afraid of dying? 
And he said, no, that would be philosophical. It would be a philosophical mistake. Uh, by that, he meant that you can't experience your own death. It's, it's, it's philosophical, it's a very tricky business of knowing what it means to die. Um, and um, and he, but then he said, but I'm gonna miss my friends. Um, I think death, interestingly enough, um, gestures a loneliness that just threatens us deeply. And um, uh, the fact that we are promised a life with God doesn't make death any less terrifying, but it does promise that we will have a friend. That's a, um, a, a very deep um, commitment. I think, interestingly enough, I've thought a lot about death. I'm a theologian. <laughs> and I didn't think much about growing old. Growing old is a hell of a challenge. <laughs> and um, how, how um, to feel um, the life going out of you uh, is, um, uh, is something that we need to give to one another. Because what I mean by that is as you grow older, you necessarily become more dependent. And dependency is a gift we give to those who have not yet become dependent. Hmm. Um, and uh, how to be friends of those who no longer can do what they once did is an ongoing challenge of Christian fellowship. And that, I think, is what is missing in so many lives. And why it is that Americans, on the whole, who think they ought to be independent, uh, have trouble coming to terms with death because they can't come to terms with aging. We see that, we certainly see that in the uh, relative isolation of those who are older and more debilitated into institutions where they can be concentrated and managed and kept from interfering too much with most of our daily goings on. It, it's interesting. My mother was in the C.C. Young um, residential facility in Dallas, sponsored by the Methodists. The Methodists aren't good at very much, but they're pretty good at uh, providing a retirement. And um, you've got to be good at something. <laughs> and um, I, when I, visiting her fairly often, I begin to realize how difficult friendships are within retirement context. How many deaths can you experience um, uh, and know how to go on? So uh, it, it's a deep challenge to 
as we grow older. It seems like some of the reasons that came out of that are that it's inevitable, death is inevitable, that it represents loss of the things that we love here on Earth, that it can be isolating, um, and that the aging process is, is terrifying in and of itself. And it seems like we've had a cultural response to this in which we're not just ignoring it or kind of hiding it away, but that we're attempting to stop death um, to pretend that it doesn't happen. So I'm thinking of the movements in medicine towards um, dermatology to make us seem like we're forever young or for plastic surgery that it also kind of preserve youth um, or even kind of in philosophy and ethics, this idea of transhumanism that we can use technology to prolong or even evade death. Um, and we're pouring resources kind of into these areas. And so I'm curious what, how this fits into this idea of being afraid of death. Because um, we're not just ignoring it, we're actively trying to fight it. And what that is all about. Neither Stanley nor I have availed ourselves of these resources. Available to make us. I don't know what to say about that, except that it does seem endemic to the human condition that people have wanted to try to make themselves look younger long past the point where that was more than um, uh, kind of pathetic um, exercise. But I, I, I guess it's a sign of, I don't know, there's probably, there's probably something good in that, Stanley. What is the good in there that's getting corrupted? I don't think it's good at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's good because, I mean, insofar as aging is now becoming a illness, you can see the corruption of medicine. Because if aging is an illness, then that means that you want to try to defeat it in a way that has some normative idea of being young. And if, I mean, if it's at the same kind of logic of why is breast enhancement a therapy? Um, um, the very idea that you need to, that your body needs to be transformed by a plastic surgeon um, in order to be more attractive. Why is that medicine? Um, I think that um, the attempt to, uh, why, I put it more controversially perhaps, why is the failure to experience pregnancy in which you use IVF, um, why is that understood? as illness. Uh, the very expansion of medicine into the attempt to make us better than we are physically is a very dangerous development. So that, that I, I, I certainly agree with Stanley about that, but I think I see, I'm reminded of the good that is being corrupted here. The good is, is the, the gift of health which when we age, uh, we have a health that's fitting for us at that age, but it is a diminished health. Stanley is less healthy than he was at 40. Um, and 
less healthy than I was at 40. Um, and, and yet, so I think that good, um, understanding and pursue it, but then the distortion is we, we want to hold on to it as if it's ours to keep forever, rather than something that's just of its nature, it's a mortal creature, something we're gonna to have to watch dissipate and ultimately will be taken from us yeah, absolutely. So at the same time as we have this resistance to death and we're fighting it with all we can, um, some people have kind of looked at culture and made the assessment. I'm thinking of Pope John Paul II had a line that we're experiencing a culture of death. Um, and so evidence of this would be kind of the rising suicide rates among teenagers, which is just tragic, um, or even movements in medicine for euthanasia or sometimes called physician assisted suicide. Um, and that seems almost like an embrace in some ways of death. <coughs> Don't leave out abortion mm -hmm. yes. um, as part of the culture of death. Um, one of the most dangerous aspects of modernity is how compassion has become a killer. Mm -hmm. Namely, if you say, well, a Down syndrome child would be better off that they not be born because they're going to suffer from being Down syndrome. Therefore, compassionately, you abort them. That's murder. And uh, it's murder in the name of compassion in a way that corrupts us and the world in which we find ourselves. The, um, the same the same is true. I say that within a within hundred years, if Christians are identified as people who don't kill their children or their elderly, we will be doing pretty well. Because it's coming, I believe. And how we, as Christians, can claim that we would not have those who are on the point of death to say that they want to relieve us of caring for them by taking, by having their own life hurried to end is a very dangerous business and you sure don't want to get physicians into it. <laughs> Um, but I fear it's coming, all in the name of being good. Indeed, the, the, uh, the organization that has led quite effectively the political movement to promote physician-assisted suicide is called, anybody? Compassion, and so there's the first, the first leg, is we have a tremendous cultural uh, emphasis on Passion. But the key is that compassion in the modern era, um, after a few hundred years of kind of uh, a deep skepticism about whether we can have any knowledge about what's good and evil in fact and about what is good and bad for another person, compassion has been uh, become essentially um, expressed in doing for another what he or she wants done for them. Um, helping another live out their authentic life, uh, 
and enact their authentic death. So that's compassion. And the second word that's the dominant word of our cultural time, and this organization put it in their title, I think, uh, uh, sadly, is choices, which is kind of the, the inverse of the, or the other side of the same coin. Um, if what makes our life worth living is that we can make choices and live the life we want to live, authentically live out what we internally perceive as it means to be true to who we are um, without respecting any external frame of reference or received wisdom or, and certainly not something like a Christian tradition, um, then the last choice we have when we face the loss of all of our choice making as we look at death, we have advanced cancer, or we or have dementia, we can see starting to come on, or, or we have, uh, in some countries, uh, someone who has uh, a severe disability. The last choice we can make is the choice to, to cause our own death. Um, so there's a kind of terrible irony in that, um, that, that the last exercise of choice is to destroy the capacity to make choices. Um, but it does seem to have a kind of internal consistency by making choice the most important thing. When you can't make choices, a sensible thing seems to be to cause your own death. Don't forget, part of the culture of death is war. War. I mean, people, evangelicals oftentimes want to be against abortion. But if you're against abortion, you ought to have deep worries about war. That needs to be said um, and worked out. Thank you. So, in response, my question is just what are Christians to make of this? Can we give an account of the good of aging? Is there a good in aging? Is there a proper place for death in our lives? What is the, um, how can Christians respond to all of this? Um, I will say, and I'll just comment on what I've observed, and maybe you know, to Stanley, though, to comment on the, the kind of key theological uh, substance here. But what I've observed um, when Christians die in a way that seems to be reflective of being Christians, and, and the mother of my uh, daughter's classmate, I think, exemplified this quite powerfully. It's um, it is not that they make death into something to be embraced, um, much less something to be kind of, um, to have some kind of sappy story about that, that this is, you know, Jesus is overcoming, and so I'm just celebrating on my way to heaven. Because um, that generally rings false. Um, uh, but rather, they are able to lament the loss of the beautiful things they've been given including their friends and family. And um, and yet hang on and communicate the hanging on patiently to pick up that prayer that Stanley was looking for. Um, communicate they're going they're patient, meaning they're not desperately resisting. They're not um, lashing out, um, except in lament. Uh, which is a way of lashing out to God that Christians have been able to say is, is a fitting way of lashing out. But they, they are 
hanging on in faith uh, to the truth that is at the heart of the gospel that God is going to have the last word and that his friendship with them because of Christ's death and resurrection will not be overcome, even by death. When my father died, um, my wife and I were in Egypt, so it took a while for us to get back, and I was, I always knew I should preach my father's funeral. I'm not ordained, but <coughs> I had permission. And uh, it was about as good a funeral as we Methodists could do. <laughs> Excepting the preacher? Uh, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I thought I was pretty good. <laughs> um, um, and we had Eucharist as a way of remembering we're part of communion. My father is part of that communion. Um, he was be cremated, and uh, we had to wait. It was on a Friday. We had to wait through the weekend for uh, his ashes. And I hadn't thought about it, but the pastor of the church that um, my father, my father was a bricklayer, and um, he had built this church. The pastor of this church then was, we went to the cemetery, and he was going to um, uh, have a short service for the disposition of the ashes. As part of that, he then read a poem that said, he's not really dead, he just passed over, and um, you uh, therefore can reach him anytime you want. I wanted to kill the son. <laughs> <laughs> he was dead. <laughs> My mother loved it. <laughs> and, um, I um, uh, I think that that is the kind of thing we confront often um, as Christians. Um, um, Paul and I are communicants at the Church of Holy Family, which is just right up the street, as you know. And we, um, at All Saints, we take the time to read the name of every person that has died in our congregation that has kept us going. I think that's not, I hope to be part of the, one of those names. Mm. Um, and of course, people will not know what that strange name names, but it makes me part of an ongoing uh, community that um, I think is extremely uh, important. Just a couple other thoughts that come to my mind. One is very practical. I think Christians can, in our time, uh, uh, practice talking about dying and death and avoiding euphemisms, just as a way of speaking truthfully. Uh, uh, <coughs> that's, a, that's a simple thing. And um, the other thing that strikes me, and this is the much harder one, that to prepare to die, um, the saints have been clear about this, is to go ahead and die to yourself. <clears throat> Paul's able to say, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. And it wasn't just 
actual exercise for him. It was, I'm done. I'm done with my old way of life. I'm not calling the shots. Um, I'm, I've been reborn into the, into the new life that Christ has brought me. And then uh, that seems to be, a, that's the way Christians prepare to die, is to be done with the ways of the world and with living for ourselves. I'm not preaching that because I would need to preach it to myself uh, before I preach it to anyone else, but that seems pretty clear. At, at the heart of, of that, Jesus is not dead. Jesus died and was resurrected. Yeah. And that makes possible a hope in an ongoing life with Christ. We don't speculate about what that will look like. But it does mean that Christ is still having effects. Um, you're here. That's one of the effects. And that that is uh, uh, absolutely critical for us being a people who are able to stare death down in a manner that it does not rule our lives. Remember, death is one of the powers. And the powers um, uh, have us in a manner that our very ability to try to will our way free of the powers reproduces them. So how to be a people capable of recognizing death in a way that doesn't let it determine who we are as those who Christ continues to be present to is part of the challenge, it seems to me, that we face in the world in which we find ourselves. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering what it looks like for communities, churches, families um, to live this out in practical ways. And so one of the scenarios that kind of comes to mind as being super challenging is what we're supposed to do in the face of tragic death, of untimely death. It's one thing to age um, and to face, face death as a natural entity. And it's another thing to have it snatched away seemingly so unfairly. Children are the great challenge. Um, let me uh, uh, be unbelievably gauche, but I actually wrote a book called Naming the Silences, God, Medicine, the Problem of Suffering. That's about the suffering and death of children. And um, what I think is entailed in the, is we live in a world in which people have children, but they haven't got the slightest idea of why. Um, um, when I taught a marriage course at the University of Notre Dame, I would um, ask the kids what reason would they give why they ought to have a child. And they would say things like, children are fun. I would say, think about your brothers and sisters. 
children um, are um, there because our parents want them. Um, and we're not, we're not going to plan to fulfill those kind of And I would tell them, well, if you're married, you know, having children is a duty. And they hated that. <laughs> um, but there's a certain sense that marriage is a calling to have children. Um, the problem is, given the incoherence of having children morally in this society, um, uh, you think they've got to be perfect, namely that a child with a hair lip is tragically born. It is the case that some children are born dying. And if you've been in a pediatric ICU, um, I mean, it tears your heart out. But it is right that they have to die. How to be a community that can absorb that? is a great challenge, but it is absolutely necessary um, um, because the other side of it is you just put them to death. I'm sure you've seen it. Yes, I remember in uh, the early 2000s, I believe it was, an article was published in the New England Journal of Medicine called The Groaning Protocol for Newborns. And it described in the Netherlands the practice that was now being made public um, that had been developed and allowed by the, the authorities there of killing newborns that had um, um, unbearable, uh, hopeless and unbearable suffering. That was the English translation of the, of the Dutch uh, way of putting it. Hopeless and unbearable suffering. And angiomyosin. Exactly. It was spinodifida. So these are kids with spine bifida, and it hit me so powerfully, both to see doctors euthanizing babies, um, but also I have a first cousin um, uh, who lived 14 years with severe spine bifida, um, died 20 years ago. But I, I immediately knew that is an, that is the most um, the most untruthful way thing to say that a baby has hopeless and unbearable suffering and we must kill it in order to prevent that suffering from going on when the reality is you don't find anybody with spina bifida saying i'm hopeless and have unbearable suffering please kill me um, so it, it clearly is just an expression of we don't have hope for going on as parents of this child and the, Hospital facilitates us not having, having to. Um, I don't. I don't do pediatric palliative care, only with adults. I only know from my colleagues who do, particularly Ray Barfield, who is a colleague to both of us, um, that the suffering and anguish and loss when a child dies is just another level higher than what we generally see um, with adults. And um, I remember years ago. My wife and I, for an hour or so, couldn't find our daughter. 
you know, it's just anybody's parent has probably been through that. It, it's, a, it's a level of terror that you don't, uh, that I haven't experienced in other ways. Um, so there's something, something particularly awful about losing your child. Absolutely. So in terms of our approach moving forward for people to kind of walk out of here and, and have some sense of what it means to live as a good Christian who sees death as the inevitable end, um, what do we, how, what are the spiritual virtues that we're trying to inculcate within ourselves? So I'm thinking about prayers like the classic 18th century, like, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep, I should have before I wake, for him my soul to take kind of thing, or in my tradition we have one where we pray for a perfect end. But what are the components of a perfect end, and how do we prepare ourselves to face it well? To never believe in a perfect end. (laughs) 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 I can't imagine people who will tell me the truth. say watching again hundreds of people die that if you don't want bullshit in your life at the end you have to get rid of the bullshit in your life before the end because you know you would think when people are dying that people ask me this sometimes what it was like people are dying you'd think they'd be you know locked in and there would be once you know you're dying you, you, you start to do things you would have done it had you known you were dying or, but the reality is what most people do when they're dying is what they've done all their life. Um, if they've been neurotic and frantic and anxious and demanding, that's what they continue to be. If they've been open-handed and generous and patient, that's what they continue to be. If they've watched baseball, they're watching baseball <laughs> in the hospital soon. Um, and I'm reminded, it was actually 20 years ago, I remember hearing Stanley give a talk um, in which he spoke of the fact that historically, in, um, I think in the Anglican communion, but, the, but I think also in the, in the Roman Catholic communion, there was a liturgical prayer that was often prayed, Lord, that included the, the, the line, Lord, save us from an, save me from an untimely death. By untimely, the prayer meant um, one that just hits me that I don't have time to prepare for. And, you know, hearing about Kobe Bryant die, um, of course, thousands of people are dying every day. But what hit me, the sadness of it, was that he did not have a chance to know that he was going to die and to reckon with his friends, with his family, and with his God. Um, and so Christians have borne witness to that, 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 that one of the things that we want to do is turn our face upward and outward and um, 
make amends, reconcile, um, repent, prepare ourselves. We should be doing that every day, but when death is on the close horizon, all the more. There's a tradition that developed in the middle centuries called the Ars Moriendi. It came to be called the Ars Moriendi, and it was, uh, as best I understand it, came up around the time of the bubonic plague when there were not enough clergy to, to really perform the rites around people who were dying that were that were the standard rites of the church because so many people were dying so fast. And the church kind of gave its, um, uh, uh, not official endorsement, but it, it, it encouraged the dissemination of really like comic books, basically prints, that gave people, could instruct people on how to die. And it was basically, um, each print was kind of a, uh, an image of the temptations you'll face to despair, um, to pride, and so on, and give gave people an image of how to kind of um, prepare themselves spiritually um, and uh, uh, get ready to die. Yeah, let me uh, blurb uh, another very wonderful book by Alan Verhey um, uh, called um, uh, Morindi. And it's just terrific. The Christian art of dying. The Christian art of dying. Uh, the uh, prayer um, to save us, save us from a sudden death is um, in the Great Litany. Uh, and I, I unfortunately can't either uh, the act of people left it out. <laughs> it's in there. I can't find it. It's, uh, uh, it's they wanted to be saved from a sudden death because they wanted to make sure and have time to be reconciled with God. So they wanted to have time to confess their sins and to be forgiven uh, as part of the ongoing dying process. Now it's interesting that patients ask doctors to keep them alive to the point that when they die, they don't have to know they're dying. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a way to um, uh, reduce forgetfulness. Whereas the churches save me from a sudden death was a way of remembering what you were doing. And I'll say practically one of the leading edges in the in the in the problematic, I think, push in the domain of medicine to get doctors to aid in dying make the person's death or end is the practice of palliative sedation and consciousness, which is not accepting sedation, the loss of consciousness, as a side effect when you have some good reason to to, uh, to be pain or, or other symptoms, which the church has always accepted. But instead, it's for folks who just say, I can't take sitting here thinking about the fact that I'm going to die. I want to be out of it. And uh, physicians will take them out and keep them out until they we haven't talked about pain, but pain is such a deep reality. <coughs> and I'm a great supporter of uh, heroin as one of the <coughs> ways of dealing with pain. You mean narcotics generally, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> 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 heroin, the truth is they are basically you know, different formulations of the same group. <laughs> Thank you for this dialogue. We, we want to leave some time uh, for question and answer.
So if we could transition to that now, but but thank you, Elaine and Stanley and, and Farmer, and sure to do that. The way we're going to do this is if you have a question, uh, Matt will be sort of running the mic up and down the aisle. So if you could either make your way to him, or if that's not doable, he can make his way to you. But he's not going to let go of the microphone. It's just going to be easier if he keeps the uh, the microphone while you ask the question. Excellent. All right, questions. Do you find that most Christians are more afraid of dementia than they are of dying? In my observation, um, I think they think maybe more about dementia uh, as they age. Um, I, I don't know what they're more afraid of, but they're afraid of both for sure. My father is is 80 and a young 80, like uh, you know, similar to around Stanley's age, and um, he's definitely much more worried about dementia than dying. I don't know. I think um, it's, it, having dementia is a little like being mentally handicapped. Um, People think when they see someone that is intellectually disabled that they would rather be dead than be them. But that, what, what that does is project on the person that's intellectually disabled my view of what I would be if I were them. But I'm not. And so it doesn't mean because they're intellectually disabled that they would rather not be. They would rather be because all they know is who they are. I think that's true of people with dementia too. That what happens is we lose who we are. I, um, if you've been around anyone that's um, um, suffering from severe mental illness, you get some of the same uh, reaction. <coughs> um, uh, namely, you you can't imagine being what they are, mm -hmm. but uh, that's not their problem. <laughs> Just briefly, if you want to read a wonderful book. Um, about this topic, uh, written by a, a wonderful theologian friend of ours, John Swinton. I forget the exact title, but I think it's Dementia Living in the Memories of God. Um, so, I recommend that to you. All right, other questions? Um, how about I talk to my friends and family um, who are not Christians about that? Wait, part your time through very carefully. <laughs> I um, I don't think there's any given formula for making that possible. Um, I always think that rather than starting with. What do you value? What's the meaning of life? 
Ask them what they want. <laughs> what do you want? That at least gets stuff off the ground. There was uh, a man a couple thousand years ago who characteristically asked people, what do you want in his ministry in Galilee? So there's another form of hastening death called voluntary stopping eating and drinking. It can be accomplished in contemporaneous version where one has a mental capacity to elect for that path. And it's also in the advanced directive version. And I'm wondering if you think that both of those forms of hastening death basically fall under the categories of physician aid and dying. Um, just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll say briefly that the, this can be justified either through the biblical warrant that we're not to kill or it's been justified in uh, a tradition, a long tradition, centuries old, uh, Christian reasoning and natural law reasoning, that it's never reasonable to make your death your goal in your actions, uh, to intentionally cause your death. Um, so when someone is sick and uh, for whatever reason, and they've lost their appetite, and they um, know that they're dying, and, and I see this quite frequently, and they stop eating and drinking, I don't think we want to call that, um, certainly not to call that suicide uh, in most cases, but it's just, they've stopped eating and drinking because it's no longer doing them any good. It's no longer giving them much benefit and or it's now burdensome to them. When someone stops eating and drinking as their mechanism of getting themselves dead, um, that's something that the church is, been really clear about we, we we don't have the freedom to do. I I I've always thought hydration is the bottom line. I mean, if yeah, if you're in a coma and um, there doesn't seem to be any um, good outcome, um, that you're not going to come out of the coma without without dying. Um, that people then that want to uh, say, well, why don't you go ahead and put them to death? It's because death needs to be the agent, not us. And you need to continue hydration uh, because dying of, of, of thirst is not a pretty business. I will say, practically speaking, people who are conscious and therefore people making choices just don't stop drinking um, uh, very often. Uh, that what people lose when they're sick is appetite, um, and, and and then people will get to the point where they don't drink because they're they're basically dying. They're they're losing consciousness. But conscious people who are alert generally don't stop drinking um, uh, unless they're trying to cause them death. Any questions from the right side of the see one in the back? You do not hear Just last week, um, we were at um, a summit for the March for Life um, through our Anglican uh, denomination. 
there was a lot of conferences there, and it was interesting because like the one thing that people got really up in arms and just angry about um, when people were talking about it was not anything to do with abortions. The one speaker there that was talking about death and um, the um, business of um, just the, the business of euthanasia and also um, dealing with assisted suicide. And a lot of it had to do with the suicide part of it. Um, and I think it had a lot of that, what, what it got from the fact that people were kind of very like emotionally bristling about it. I think it had a lot to do with people who didn't know the others who had committed suicide and had that emotional kind of attachment to that um, that happening. And so I, I guess my question would be like, how do we, because one of the things that we were arguing about is how do you properly console somebody uh, as a Christian, how do you properly console somebody who has lost somebody who killed themselves, basically? Some years ago, I was giving a lecture at the University of Chicago Medical School uh, to uh, residents. They had medical ethics around, and uh, um, the week before I came, they'd done abortion, and they'd all come to the conclusion that um, uh, if uh, they were asked to perform an abortion, they would do it because their job is to do what patients ask them to do. You can tell they were very young. Um, uh, I said, okay, um, uh, let's try a different um, uh, set of issues. You're in the ER, you're rotating through the ER, and someone is brought in that tried to drown themselves in Lake Michigan. Uh, it's the winter and it wasn't iced up yet and the water was very cold, so they still are viable. They have a big plastic sheet on their chest that says, if pulled out of Michigan to, before I, I'm still alive, please do not resuscitate. And underneath it says, see the statement of my psychiatrist that I'm thoroughly um, uh, same, and then see my statement reflecting with Seneca about how suicide is the final form of autonomy that I want to live through. So please do not try to save me. And I asked them what would they do. They said, well, of course we'd try to resuscitate them. I said, really? Why? They said, well, it's our job as a doctor. We're to save lives. And I said, well, um, um, if, um, if you're to save lives, what, what gives you the right to impose your role specifications on this person that is trying to commit suicide? We debated this for a couple of hours. And they finally came to the decision that if the person came in the first time, they would try to save them. But if they came in the second time, they'd let them go. <laughs> now, one of the problems that we confront is um, what, what reason? The presumption is that anyone who tries to commit suicide is likely to be sick. But that's not true as increasingly um, is apparent. 
So the, the so the question is, what right do we have to uh, impose our specifications of what it means to live on someone that rationally is committing suicide? And I, all we need to do is change the name. Let's just call it life self-taking. Hmm. What happened to Joe? Oh, he life self-took. Oh, okay. Um, and so. Um, what we're confronting today is really a change in moral description, and that is extremely dangerous. <coughs> and uh, how uh, it, that's going to come out is a real, is a real issue. How? What I'm suggesting is, is there's no way you're going to win that argument. It's not accidental that those who are for assisted suicide and euthanasia bristle at them being called assisted suicide and euthanasia. Uh, at least that doctors participate, patient in them. They want them called physician aid in dying to dissociate them from from what they are. Um, whenever you know we use language in a way that seems to obscure the most plain description of what we're doing, as a sign that. Um, we should, that there's something untruthful going on. I will say this, to kind of get into your question, uh, there's a, an essay that Stanley wrote 30 years ago, probably, um, called Salvation and Health, Why, Why Medicine Needs the Church. It's been anthologized in a few places. Um, but I encourage you to read it. But in it, he tells the story of it as, a, as an adolescent, having a friend whose mother died by suicide. And uh, the thing I took from this essay, which I've had the uh, pleasure of reading many times, is that at the, and this goes back to the broader topic, one of the hardest things for us to do around people who have lost greatly, lost a child, uh, or are themselves dying, um, is, to, is to stick around. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly observed this in hospice. People kind of, when people are diagnosed with something, Terrible people flood in to visit and so on, and then pretty quickly they pull away generally. And so often people are rather alone toward the end. And then Christians, many Christians, I think, problematically have taken on this notion that they don't want to be bothers to people, and so they almost keep people away while they're dying. Um, but it seems like one of the things that friends can do, certainly Christians should do as part of our life together, is just hang in there, regardless of whether you have something to say or not. Um, Stanley also once said, you know, don't just say something, stand there. Uh, <laughs> just, just be around and not go away when people are hurting badly. Notice what happens when you go into a hospital room with, and uh, the person is a friend, and the first thing you do is say, can I roll your bed up? <laughs> or can I do something with your, these flowers and so on. You want to do something, uh, but oftentimes there's not a damn thing you can do other than be present. Now, that's what fire has to do oftentimes. He just can be present. He can't help much at all. And that, frust that is very frustrating for physicians, but they've got to learn how to do that, to simply say, simply because you're suffering and you're ugly, because oftentimes you're ugly. Um, 
doesn't mean we're going to abandon you. Let that be a practice of the church. Uh, 
afford uh, the kind of training he's received. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's right? Excuse me? Definitely, though, the, the proportion of money spent on medicine can't go up forever. It's already, we're showing signs that it's, it's also starting to kind of reach an asymptote. So um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that the, there's, it's more problematic the way we meddle with people all their life long to marginally reduce their risk of something bad happening 30 years later than it is that we take care of sick people in the hospital when they get sick. But there are problems in the way to go about the latter as well. To me, if you had a medical system that, uh, and, a, and a financing system that ensured that people who were born with disabilities or, or encounter disabilities can get basic helpful nursing care and physical therapy and so on, and that when you're sick, you get taken care of acutely, um, that'd be a pretty good system. And if we took some of our attention away from you know, trying to reduce my risk from one in 40 to one in 60 uh, of having a heart attack 20 years from now. Um, we could free up some money. We could also free up some of our psychic resources to focus on other things that Christians know that they can do. Time for one final relatively brief question. Mark, this is just something. Hi. Is it possible to embrace death in, a, in any kind of noble fashion in the sense of, say, an act of, I think an act of civil disobedience where you know you know you will be killed, um, but it's, yeah, it, is that possible? Absolutely, it's called martyrdom. <laughs> <laughs> the martyrs are our um, uh, paradigmatic people that teach us how to die. So there's no question that that's possible because they're there. there there's a wonderful little book called The Theology of Illness by Jean-Claude Blarchet, which is a, <clears throat> which uh, includes innumerable quotations from the early uh, the Greek patristics, the Greek church fathers. And it was clear that they were, they were wrestling with this a lot in the first centuries. Um, and it seems to be one of these areas that Christians have a kind of built-in fitting kind of ambivalence about. One, we are to be, at times, disregard death and to um, fly in our pursuit of what God's calling us to be and do, um, even knowing that death is likely to come or even certainly going to come as a consequence in certain cases. At the same time, we're never to seek to get ourselves killed. And, and Jesus did not go up to get himself killed in a certain way, and yet he went up with absolute knowledge that he would be killed. He set his face like flint, and so um, that's where we look. The martyr can never seek to be killed. Their job is always to escape. But that turns out not to be possible oftentimes. <laughs> but you don't want the sin of your murderers to be on their souls. So you prefer to escape. All right, thank you so much. We're almost at 6.30. So at this point, I'm going to invite 
um, our speakers to uh, come off stage and take a seat in the front row, and also to give them a round of applause. Madison Perry is going to close for us. Thank you, Delaney, for and Stanley. Um, I was in Wichita, Kansas this past week, and don't ask why, but um, I was I was overhearing somebody talking, and they said, um, "Yeah, I've been I've known Stanley Hirewas for a long time. He's really impacted my ministry. He's the priest." And then um, somebody else who he was talking to said. Yeah, and I've been corresponding with um, this doctor down at Duke who's really influenced by Sonny Hatterwas, and he's a physician, and she was too. And she said, and they're going to be doing a talk together somewhere um, like in North Carolina on Monday night. <laughs> um, so it was a joy to be somewhere in North Carolina. You know who was. All right. Yeah. That reminds me, I have to say something I yeah. meant to say, which is that if there's anybody in this audience who either is or knows, a Christian healthcare practitioner in training who wants to learn to think and act Christianly in the world as we find it. Um, we have a remarkable, really singular program of theological formation for those with vocations to healthcare at Duke Divinity School, and I have a privilege of co-directing that. I've got flyers with me, um, and we've had several UNC uh, folks go through it, so talk to me if you're interested. Thank you. Uh, highly recommend um, and I had the joy of studying, studying under um, Dr. Harawas at Duke Divinity School. And one of his big principles was, was that the way to see the beauties of the Christian tradition is to see it in action, to see it applied to some cultural or um, systematic kind of issue. It's not to begin with um, proving the resurrection. You prove the resurrection as you prove its application, um, which is some of what we have experienced tonight. And I actually, um, after taking Dr. Howard's class, I went back to UNC Law School and got to do an independent study on the criminal justice system and how the logic of deterrence, where we would punish a criminal purely in order to deter future incidences um, of that happening ever again, um, is considered to be a just reason to punish somebody, even in excess of the crime, um, which I think also speaks to our reliance on a fear of um, pain and death. Um, it plays out in our justice system too, which is interesting. Um, so I thought maybe a fitting way to finish the night would be to pray the prayer that Dr. Harawas mentioned. And so that is how we will wrap this up. So we can, uh, so let us pray. This is another day, O oh Lord. I know not what it will bring forth, but make me ready, Lord, for whatever it may be. If I am to stand up, help me to stand bravely. If I am to sit still, help me to sit quietly. If I am to lie low, help me to do it patiently. And if I am to do nothing, let me do it gallantly. Make these more than words and give me the spirit of Jesus. Amen. 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 Go in peace. <laughs>